Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. This is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy at Credit Sites. And today I am talking all things leverage loan market with Carrie Canton. She is our U.S. Bureau Chief for Levfin Insights, always very on top of what is going on in the U.S. loan markets. I also want to note we are recording on January 25th, and this is important because the market is moving very quickly on a day-to-day basis. So we want to make sure that everyone knows when the recording date is because this podcast will be coming out just a couple days after. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today to talk loans. Well, thanks for having me, Winnie. This has been quite a ride in January thus far. Indeed, it has. I mean, the leverage loan market is off to, I would say, a robust start. We have total returns in solid positive territory, and that follows a really strong performance for the asset class at the end of 2023 and and really the full year. Um, And this has left the new issue calendar wide open. You know, what are some of the main drivers of this strong calendar that we're seeing building up in January? You know, as was sort of the case, you know, in a lot of risk assets, um, you know, things tightened late in 2022, first with the CPI print and then following the Fed meeting and sort of the growing optimism that a soft landing could become a reality. When we came back in January, um, loan spreads had tightened materially. And the other important thing to know is there is a very paltry calendar of underwritten deals waiting in the pipeline. Um, So as a result, we saw issuers line up first. Um, the first real crush of deals was issuers simply looking just to reduce spreads. And we saw a crush of mark-to-market repricings. We're still seeing them, although deal flow is a little bit better diversified now with respect to amend to extends and refinancings, which are not just refinancings of loans, and that's something we'll discuss a little bit later. But going forward, we've already had, and as you said, this was um, this is January 25th. As of yesterday's close, there were almost $83 billion of straight mark-to-market repricings, and I believe over $100 billion of issuers that are looking to reduce spreads when you factor in refis and extensions that also reduce coupons. So that's been a huge focus this year. And it's honestly left, I think, people kind of feel like they're in triage mode because you ask someone about an LBO that's due next week and how it's going and they say, oh, if it's not due within the next 48 hours, I'm not focused on it right now. So it's created sort of a frenetic start to the year. A frenetic start to the year indeed, which I'm wondering if it is coming as a surprise to you because, you know, one of the big things that we had expected, especially following that dovish pivot from Fed Chair Powell in December, was perhaps more momentum in fixed income over floating rate products like loans. So are you surprised by just how 
strong the momentum is in loans so far in January? Not really. Um, Whether this dynamic persists throughout the year remains to be seen. And I think there could be a bias towards more fixed income, like your fixed rate stuff later in the year. But in loans, this is it's sort of this seasonal thing we've seen before. And I did some look, did some looking back at both other years with very heavy January repricing volume. And it was January of 17 in particular that is probably the closest volume wise. Um, But what happens in loans is, I mean, this happens in high yield too, is there's there's gap between the end of the year and there's no new issues. Um, And repricings are remarkably quick deals to pitch. You see that a a loan has a spread that is too high relative to the rating segment, whether where spreads are. And for those of you who aren't that close to leverage loans, a reminder that six months of 101 soft call, which basically means you get paid out at 101 within the first six months only if the loan is like refinanced with a loan at a lower interest rate. So not even if it's repaid with an M&A transaction or whatnot. And so bank can call an issuer and say, hey, I can reduce your margin from 300 to 250. This is why we think they say yes, and the transaction goes. And so repricings are really pretty quick to pitch. And that's why that not really the first week of the year, but the second week of the year, I think they gave people a few days after the new year before the onslaught began, you just saw this huge crush and it was very, very repricing centric. Um, So, you know, this was also the case in January 2017. And that was a little bit of a different dynamic. It was coming off of a, on a hard year because if, as if you recall, the oil and gas drama created volatility that year and then the market tightened late in the year. However, that year, funny enough, it was that interest rates were beginning to rise and people were putting money in the loan asset class. Obviously, the, the interest rate dynamic is rather different now. Um, so the crush of repricings, no, I can't say I was surprised. The other thing is that because loans are tied to SOFR, you're not watching you know, the 10-year, I think, the same way in high yield that they are. And clearly that market, so a lot of people, I think, think the market, the move might have been overdone in December. But what, what in theory could have been offer, an offer then, it's a little bit wider now, although the sell side really continues to remind us how attractive it is compared to you know, most of last year, almost all of last year, really. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do think that the move in December was was pretty overdone at credit sites on the strategy side. We went from being among the most dovish in the room to now more hawkish in a matter of two weeks. I mean, that is just a wild move in market sentiment overall. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the nitty gritty details of the primary market, especially when we're thinking about this repricing wave. You know, if we're having this massive boost in repricings, what are some of the trends that we're seeing? How much savings are issuers actually realizing in terms of spread when they're pursuing these repricings? As of yesterday, we ran the data and it was 59 basis points was the average reduction in spread. Now, there's a nuance to that, though, because if you recall last year, the crush of them came last year when the loan market migrated, completed the, the migration from LIBOR to SOFR. And a lot of and issuers had to amend to migrate to the new base rate. They added in credit spread adjustments starting in the third quarter issuers started stripping them out. However, that was predominantly through refinancings and and, and amend to extends. The majority of the repricings last year actually kept them in place. The line of thinking at the time, I think, was that, hey, we want to be 100% transparent around the magnitude of the spread reduction. And also back then, 
I think the transition to sofa was a little newer. Now, that seems a little bit further in the rear view, and the market is white hot. And to be fair, I think everybody always expected the loan market to transition away from CSAs, and we can just price risk through the spread and the OID. There's really no reason for a new issue transaction to have them. So they've just started pulling out the CSAs. And this has added roughly nine bips to that total. So if you didn't factor in the issuers that take out the CSAs, it would be roughly 50 bips. Now, not all the deals that are being repriced currently have CSAs. A lot of them are either pre-2022 deals that had to shift to SOFR or certain recent deals did, but a lot of them did not. So that's sort of one thing that's added to the case. And I also think for some borrowers who are seeking a smaller spread reduction, you know, it could make it a little more compelling. As I know in the past, not everybody wants to come to shave off 25 basis points. But if you're shaving off 25 basis points and cutting out your CSA, which adds, you know, could add an eighth on for a one month option and roughly a quarter for a three month option, that really kind of changes the dynamics of the transaction. There was a deal and they wound up actually pivoting to a, like a full seven year refi, but Warner Music had proposed one and they actually were just going to shave an eighth off the spread, go from two and an eighth to 200. But then they also were cutting out the CSA, which definitely added to it. The deal went well enough that they actually just said, hey, we're going to do a fresh new seven year deal. And that was that. But it's been sort of a different dynamic to this repricing rate versus those in years prior. So beyond the repricing wave, you know, I think you mentioned this a little bit, but we've also seen some refi transactions that actually represent new money. And I think this is an important distinction to understand about the loan market, especially as compared to the high yield bond market. Can you walk us through how a refi differs from a repricing exercise or even an amend to extend? You know, we have these kind of three different transaction types in the loan market. And then why is it that we're seeing more refis that do have a new money component? Well, sure. So, well, first off, so yeah, there can, you can kind of, a repricing, and if you refer to just a mark-to-market repricing, what you're talking about is the company will go out and all they are doing, all they are doing is lowering the spread in, in some of these cases, taking out CSA by X amount. They're not changing any other element of the deal other than probably resetting the soft call for six months. Now, I will point out that these are open to the extent there are drops, new lenders can come in. So it doesn't feel exactly like an amendment, hypothetically speaking, if a company, we don't really have that many deals with financial covenants anymore, but hypothetically speaking, a company misses a you know reporting deadline or wants to add someone as a permitted holder, those would actually go distinctly only to the existing lender group, whereas a repricing could be open to new guys should existing lenders not want to participate. Then you have an amend to extend, which again, new investors can come in. And then there's a refi, Refis also do tend to bias new lenders, but it is sort of a brand new deal. But when you look at refinancing volume, refinancing can be issuer X refinancing its billion-dollar term loan with a new billion-dollar term loan, and that would be no new money. But given how paltry the M&A pipeline is right now of underwritten deals, in particular, the sell side is really looking for opportunity for ways to bring fresh dollars to the asset class. And so one thing we've seen, we started to see it at the end of last year, there was a sizable deal from American Airlines to refinance bonds, but we've got a couple of deals in market, one from, well, the Caesars deal priced late yesterday. And it was actually the largest new money deal since WorldPay. It wound up being $2.9 billion. They upsized it. There's one from NGL. 
So we're seeing some high yield issuers refinance into loans. I think the prepayability is really, that feature is really on display right now. And the other thing that we're starting to see is, and it was something we'd seen a little bit of a late Q4, was issuers who have private credit loans come into the BSL market because they're much cheaper. There's one example right now. It's a it's a company called Wood McKenzie. Veritas Capital bought it roughly a year ago, financed it with a Unitronch priced at six seventy five, and they've got a deal out there now that's talked at three seventy five to four hundred. So you're talking about a material reduction in interest expense that's much bigger than the aforementioned, you know, repricings of existing deals. Of course, those opportunities are not as quick to pitch because they're not existing institutional borrowers and there are various considerations at play. The other interesting thing that we've seen that does in certain cases can generate some new money as we've seen also seen a string of first lien loans to refinance second lien loans. And some of these second lien loans are privately placed. So it is adding, granted, this is much, this is a less than sort of probably going to want to, you know, all the deals individually add up, but they tend to be smaller. But we've seen a bunch of those come to market as well. And obviously, if you're going from second lien to first lien, you're clearly going to reduce pricing. Of course, there are leverage constraints on that. You're not going to have a company that's 7x all senior. But that's definitely been another major trend. We saw it get underway in December, really, and it's really taken off this year. Wow, a lot of different factors driving the ship here. I would be curious if we are seeing some second liens refited to senior, some private credit deals taken back into the BSL market. That would lead me to believe that we are seeing a trend in the loan market where we're maybe seeing a return of some of the lower rated issuers. That's definitely something that has come up frequently with regards to the high yield market. We have seen some lower single B and triple C deals print this year. Is that the same for the loan market? How receptive do you think the market is to low single B issuers at this point? The market is definitely becoming more receptive um, to that point. In fact, we've had a couple of deals um, this week, one for a company called Husky, which on a related note was said to be exploring a private credit deal, but ultimately opted for BSL. And um, our terrorist services, which I'm assuming is going to get re-rated into low single B territory, but last I checked was still actually triple C. So we've definitely seen the market open up for more B3 type issuance. Of course, not all B3s are rated equal. Some tend to veer on just stressed territory and others are actually very well regarded and just have sort of more highly levered cap structures. So the divergence in pricing can actually be quite different. But overall, yes, I would definitely say that, you know, loan issuance has opened up to it. And also I would point out that some of these deals, like the aforementioned Husky and Artera deals, are both accessing um, the high yield market as well. Is there anything else that immediately comes to mind? Uh, not immediately on my end, but what what I do wonder is if we have you know stronger receptivity to lower rated deals. You know, you mentioned that we have a kind of a paltry pipeline for M and A LBOs. That must be building, right? When does that come back? You know, that is the question that everybody wants to know the answer to because you would think that if we do achieve this soft landing that there should be more deals. Right now, From I get the sense that, and you know, I haven't, I've been so busy with repricings, I honestly haven't had this conversation since the end of last year, but I got the sense that it, 
is, you know, is improving. But I think there are still some gaps between where buyers and sellers are. That being said, there is some optimism that a lot of companies and sponsors that have been looking to sell businesses have been waiting a long time. It's not like we're going, we're three months into a dislocation. I mean, the Ukraine war started almost two years ago. So I do think that we'll start to see more deals. However, at what point do those deals hit the market? And of course, that's assuming there isn't another disruption that sets us back, you know? So it's, it, there's not that much visibility on this point. One thing people are thinking we could begin to see, and I have not, to the best of my knowledge, there has not been one this year, but it would be interesting to, to see that if there could be some deals proposing some portable capital structures, because I, I suspect we could see some of those. I know I've heard it, people talk about it, because it would be an attractive feature to be able to you know, sell a business, obviously under certain parameters, um, and keep the loans in place. So that might be something to look to that we could see later this year, or not later this year, it could be next week, but Absolutely. I mean, things are changing on a minute by minute basis, it seems. And I guess related to things changing on a minute by minute basis, you know, last year, one of the trends that we actually saw materialize for at least a brief period of time was bond for loan takeouts. But you just mentioned that we had, you know, the Caesars deal with more loan components, less bond component. So, you know, are bond for loan takeouts done now? No, I definitely don't think they're done, um, but I think the activity could be more two-way. Uh, because you, one thing to remember is the loan market is still dealing with a wave of CLOs that are exiting reinvestment. And while this isn't, it's not as visible when the market's functioning well. You see all these deals and they they tighten and they price and it's not like, oh, back then when, you know, oh, this deal backs up or this deal gets pulled. It it looked a lot more ugly, particularly in, you know, kind of the first part of last year. Now, however, there's an interesting deal in market I'm going to use as an example. It's a company called UKG. It used to be, it was, it was created between the merger of Ultimate Software and Kronos. They have roughly $7 billion of first lien debt outstanding today. And it all matures in 2026. And they're getting ahead of it and they're in market now with a re- refinancing out of Nomura. But it, roughly, they're refinancing roughly 30% of that they plan to in the high yield bond market because the deal is outlined to include $2.5 billion of other secured debt. And, you know, that it's, I believe it's like a B2B minus-ish profile, B2B minus B plus, I think. It's a very, it's, it's a very well-regarded name. I'm not saying they couldn't do 7 billion of TLB, but a lot of times sponsors say, hey, if there's a chunk of my investor base that can't participate, then if we do some high yield, you get a better execution on the loan. So we've definitely seen a bunch of deals that have had high yields components as part of it. And I do think we'll continue to see this going forward. That being said, I think it might be a little bit more to weigh, whereas some other borrowers might look to say, hey, I'd like to jump in and do some loans too. You know, So I think, I think we'll continue to see it, but I don't think it will just be money going all one way, which will probably be healthy for the market. Yeah, absolutely. Seeing that critical thinking around capital structures, diversification of your investor base, especially in a year where perhaps we'll see all-in coupons for loans fall because we have falling front-end rates. It will be a really interesting dynamic to see how that new issuance across the loan and high-yield market end up complementing each other. So you just mentioned the old hot topic of CLO reinvestment periods. I mean, those headlines just dominate 
nominated last year as this major risk for the BSL market. But yet now we have this massively robust January calendar chatter around these reinvestment periods seems to have died down a good bit. How does that revival of the new issue market impact the CLO reinvestment period phenomenon? Yeah, well, I think I think it gives it, it gives them options. You know, it is it, it may not be you just do a straight roll exercise, but you maybe oh you carve out a high yield deal or you do something else. But it doesn't seem to be amplified in the way it was back then. The one other thing I will mention, this is a little bit of a different point, but it's worth mentioning is that even though if you look. I think 3% of our launch volume in the year to date is M&A LBO related, just to give you an idea. And so the amount of new money when you boil it down, even if you factor in the names like Caesars that are new money, it's still a very, it's still very small. However, if you have something that's a refinancing and you lose some of your existing lenders, even if there's no high yield component, XCLO managers say, well, I can't put it in this old vehicle, but you know what? I'll hold on to my position because I like this name and I'll reinvest it in this CLO or blah, blah, blah. Or they'll, they'll do something else to reallocate it to a different fund. And so as a result, it's sort of, it's not like 100% really a role exercise because, I mean, it is from a, if you look at dollar to dollar, but from, it winds up sort of feeling like new money if managers are taking it out of these funds that have effectively turned into pumpkins and putting it into some other fund they own in lieu of buying something else. Am I am I explaining that well? Do you, do you understand what I mean here? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Okay. So it might feel like even though you say, oh, there's, you know, blah, blah, blah of gross issuance and such a tiny amount of net in comparison, that gross might feel like more if some of the the vehicles that hold it aren't reinvesting in the new deal. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know that was one of the the big concerns, but it, it feels like the moving pieces at least so far are leaving to still a relatively supportive environment and it also seems like we have, you know, CLO buyers back in the market, especially the big banks of AAAs, and and that's kind of helped tighten everything up, which then has one of those rising tides lift all ships effect on the leveraged loan market. We would not have a Levfin-oriented podcast if we didn't talk about the topic du jour, private credit. So you alluded earlier that we're seeing some private credit deals come out of the private credit market and back into the BSL market or into the BSL market to begin with. But last year we saw the reverse. So this is kind of an interesting trend. You know, what were some of the characteristics of the deals that went into private credit last year? Do you still think that private credit is a threat to kind of BSL primary activity in 2024? Or are we just unwinding all those private credit trades? So no, I don't think we're going to unwind all this private credit trade. Last year, on a lot of the deals that did go were sort of B3, B- and below issuers that would have had a harder time refinancing in the BSL market. But I, it's not the only thing. And there are a few things that have happened. First of all, you can actually just talk about size because 
back in like 2018, we had, there was like a market for like middle market syndicated deals. And with the evolution of private credit, that's much less of a thing than it used to be. And it might be a more natural fit for a borrower with a 250 or $300 million term loan to do a deal with a handful of direct lenders and call it a day. Because I think there are a lot of BSL investors who don't want to own less liquid, smaller deals. And so it might be an appropriate thing. But in addition, there's also certain, it's not just size. There can be like delayed draw loans. It's it's a structure that works very well in private credit and less so in BSL because you have to, you know, if, if you if they allocate it, they typically allocate it as a strip, which means you get your pro rata position of the funded and unfunded paper. And having a large unfunded amount, even if it pays a ticking fee, is not always the most popular thing in the CLO market. Whereas in private credit, it's a strategy that can work quite well. And I remember the big pet vet deal that was a huge deal from the private credit market. We had heard that the delayed draw availability of the new deal was a factor. So the other thing is there have been some very levered dividend deals in the private credit market that might not be appropriate, or if they're looking for something like pick interest. So it's not as black and white always as just, hey, this deal's 375, you know, versus whatever X margin is. The other thing, and private credit isn't my beat, but my colleagues who cover it tell me that the private credit market, people, those people are closely watching BSL spreads. And I think those are going to ratchet tighter and what they're going to have to offer to remain competitive. So Stay tuned. I, my personal view is probably a lot of the larger structures either may may stay BSL with certain exceptions based on specifics that you know are to the company or whatnot. But the but maybe the smaller deals will continue to go that way. It'll be interesting to see how this dynamic plays out. I will also say it's only January twenty fifth, and we have another hiccup in the market, which is certainly possible. And who knows? Yeah, absolutely. It's never just a straight line to your end, right? And it seems like we have started the year on a foot that makes it feel like, oh my gosh, immaculate disinflation, Goldilocks scenario, soft landing, no landing, markets on fire. And we actually just went, went out and recommended that investors take a little bit of, of pause and maybe think about, you know, what is the potential near-term risk? Is it higher yields? Is it that the Fed disappoints. There are a number of things kind of looming on the horizon for sure. So Carrie, I want to wrap it up with any last thoughts or words of wisdom that you may have for those of us who are following and looking at the loan market in 2024. Gosh, I mean, I just say, hold on to your hats. It's going to be it's going to be quite the ride. I will come out and say that I think that this month could be the highest repricing volume ever because the prior high was I think it was January of 17, which I believe it was, was 93 ish something. I'm trying to remember the exact number. And we still have, you know, another week or so left in the month to surpass that. The one caveat I will give is this. The market was a lot smaller then. I think it was roughly 900 billion when that 93 some odd billion was launched in one month. So as a proportion of overall market, it wouldn't be higher. But I guess I'll come out and say, who knows when this is when this is published, we may know whether I'm wrong or right. <laughs> but I guess the, the word of wisdom, if I have one, is that sort of stay tuned because 
I feel like last September, we were all feeling pretty good and we went back down. So I don't personally feel like we're necessarily out of the woods yet. I feel like everyone's still a little little jittery. And I also feel like some of this huge crush might be a like, if we've learned one thing over the last few years, it's to jump in the market when the market is open, because I don't know what the catalyst necessarily is, but stay tuned. Jump in the market when the window is open. I think that there would be a number of investment bankers who would love to have you on their team to help pitch getting deals done in the near term. Carrie, it is always a delight talking to you about the leverage loan market. If anyone has follow-up questions for me or Carrie, you can reach it out to us via the credit site's uh, integrated website, which now features all of the excellent reporting from our colleagues at Levfin Insights and also at Covenant Review. Carrie, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Winnie. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.